Just about every Christian knows about the idea of trusting God. We get the idea. But I'm not sure that we have it figured out, though, on just how much trust we're supposed to have and for exactly what we're supposed to trust Him with. How far are we supposed to take trust when it comes to our relationship with God? Is there such a thing as too much trust? This is the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson, and as you might know by now, I don't have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God, but wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of Christianity, and more specifically, the church. In this podcast, it's the collection of a journey to dig much deeper into the realm of faith, and reality itself is the study of the do-over, and it's founded on the philosophy and the principle of stopping and thinking of what we're doing and why we're doing it especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what this all has to do with me. Parenting is a very interesting role. You know, you bring a child into your world so that you can guide them and teach them and love them and then provide for them. Now, that last one, well, it takes a certain amount of sacrifice to make that happen. Providing for your children typically means that your needs will inevitably take a back seat. So just the other day, one of my daughters came home from working at her bagel place uh, job, touting a bag of bagels, exclaiming, I've got bagels. Now that statement would probably lead you to believe that these bagels were a gift for anyone and everyone to partake of. Unfortunately for my wife, she would find out that this was not the case. The next day, my daughter comes home from school and I'm in the kitchen. And as always, she walks in and I ask her how her day has gone. While she's mumbling out her reply, she's eyeing the bag of bagels behind me, which have been transferred into a large, clear Ziploc bag. After her mumbled response, she very clearly exclaimed, I hope no one ate that chocolate chip bagel. I look over at the bag and quickly see that the chocolate chip bagel is not among the lesser bagels. My daughter's frustration boils over, and although I try to console her about her not knowing that she had claimed that specific bagel as her own and that no one in the house has the ability to read minds, she grumbles under her breath, turns, and goes to her room. Now, who would do such a thing? Who would commit such an atrocity? Who would deprive this poor child of a sweet circular bread treat? What horrible person doesn't check with the entire house before eating something that was thought to be a gift for anyone and everyone? Who, I ask you? Well, my wife, that's who. And she would later learn of her offense and the next day would go out to specifically replace this coveted chocolate chip bagel. And I remember her words very clearly as she said, how easily these kids forget about the food that they eat on a daily basis that somehow magically appears in the house every week. But oh no, that's my bagel. Well, in all seriousness, it's very natural that parents should provide for their children. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. Someday, they will probably return the favor and they'll have to provide for us. But for now, it's our job. 
Now, when it comes to our heavenly parent, did you know that he wants to do exactly the same thing to provide? I wonder, though, just what we expect of him. To what degree do we trust him to provide? For what and for how much? You know, we obviously trust God to be there. You know, when we're in trouble or if we have a specific need, we we can call on him and he'll be there. So we trust him to provide his presence. I think we also trust him to provide spiritual guidance, to provide spiritual health and spiritual life. And we trust him to provide blessing, whatever that means to each individual person. I think mostly, though, that we typically trust him to provide the things that we just can't provide for ourselves. Now, for the things we can provide for ourselves, you know what? We've got this. We don't really need him for those things. And here in America, that covers quite a lot of areas where we don't trust him to provide simply because we just don't really need him to provide. A lot of the typical thought kind of goes something like this. Well, I think God provides us with know-how and the skills we were born with to go and do the things we need to do. Or maybe God helps those who help themselves. I mean, it is true. We do go after our education. We go after jobs and careers. We go after relationships. We're able to provide for ourselves for the most part, for most of the needs or wants that we have. So our need for God to handle things isn't really there. Only if we find ourselves in a very, very specific position of need for something like a job or a wife or a life or whatever, then we will go and we seek out his help. But all the while, in the background, we're still doing stuff to try to make it happen on our own. The way that we typically lead our lives as Christians here in this country is much like the old phrase, God is my co-pilot. He's always there just in case I need something, in case I can't handle something. And in those situations, I trust him to provide. That's typically how it goes. But is that expectation that we have also God's expectation? Is that the way this is supposed to go? In Matthew in the New Testament, Jesus has been talking with a large group of people. Here in chapter 5, he starts what we call and know as the Sermon on the Mount. He's in the northern part of the region of Galilee. He's close to this little fishing village called Capernaum, and he's on the foothills of a mountain, the mountain we now call the Mount of Beatitudes, which was named for his sermon. While he didn't really preach a sermon as what we might think of a sermon to be these days, he did teach a very specific and very important lesson there, while a large group, including his own students, intently listened. Through this sermon, he would basically rewrite the rules, and he would take the things that they had been taught for generations, for hundreds of years, and reteach a new meaning of what God was looking for. Chapter 5 is where Jesus delivers the Beatitudes, and I'll go into that a little deeper at another time. But for now, let's look at chapter 6. He teaches something that we have continued to learn from for centuries, something that is seen as one of the greatest lessons Jesus ever taught. 
and he's teaching on the basics of prayer, what prayer should look like and what it should sound like. And he first says that prayer should not be attached to ritual. It shouldn't look anything like a ritual. It should not be for show. He actually tells the crowd that what they really need to do is go and find a quiet place, like a secluded room, and shut the door. Don't be around people. Just get alone somewhere with God. And then he says this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the New, Te- the New Testament, New International Version translation of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And here it is in the message translation, just for variety. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are, set the world right, do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge and you can do anything you want. You're a blazing beauty. Yes, yes, yes. Now, this was absolutely mind-blowing for those in attendance. Prayer was something typically done by someone who was qualified, an official person, like a priest or a rabbi or a teacher or an expert in the Jewish law. It wasn't done by just anyone and definitely not in such a laid-back fashion. It was seen as more of a formal religious act. But Jesus here is describing a very intimate conversation. And each section of this prayer covers the most important things that God wants to hear, the things that are most important to him, things that make him God to us. And the part I want to focus on is the part about give us our daily bread. What exactly does that mean? What did Jesus have in mind? For that, let's go backwards for a second into the Old Testament. We're going to go to the book of Exodus. The title of this book is referring to the Israelites who have been living in Egypt as labor slaves ever since they were led there years and years back by Jacob. Exodus is about them leaving Egypt, exiting Egypt, and heading to the land of God's promise. And in this book, this is where you're going to find some of these awesome, amazing stories like the plagues of Egypt and Moses parting the Red Sea so that the people could escape. Now, while the Israelites are on their journey to the promised land and after they've, they've already escaped, they've gotten to the point of grumbling that someone ate their chocolate chip bagel. No. But it did have something to do with food or, more specifically, the lack of food. They started to get hangry and they complained to Moses They even said that it would have been better for them to die in Egypt, for for there, at least, they had food to eat. Well, God heard their complaints, as a good parent always does, and he provided for their needs. At nighttime, he caused quail, the bird quail, to come and cover the ground. So the people had meat to eat every night for dinner. And then in the morning for breakfast, God provided bread in the form of like a dew that settled on the ground and dried, and it dried into this like weird, like bread-like substance. And they called this, as we know it today, manna. 
And the word manna sounds just like the Hebrew phrase for what is it? Because <laughs> they literally had never seen anything like this before. One time they'd even gathered the bread up and they measured it and it came out to be exactly what every person needed. Not too much and not too little. An exact amount for every person. And Moses even warned everybody, he said, hey, listen, if you're going to be tempted to store up a bunch of this manna for the next day and maybe even the next day, you need to know something. It's not going to work. I know you're trying to be smart and resourceful like most humans are, but this manna has got an expiration date. It's not good for the next day. It'll actually turn into maggots. So here's the idea. Every morning and every night, God will provide for your actual needs for that day. There's no reason to think ahead. There's no reason to plan ahead. There's no reason to store up food just in case. There's no need to go and try to plan a garden just in case God forgets or spontaneously he changes his mind. God would provide. Now, of course, there were those that just couldn't pass up the urge to do exactly that, and they did, and they tried to store up bread and hoard it for themselves. It ended up expiring the next day and turned into maggots. They just couldn't fully believe that God would actually provide them with everything they needed every day. They couldn't believe that he would truly, truly provide Their faith, and we know faith to mean an intimate knowledge of God, knowing him intimately, their faith was pretty darn small. But after all, and after their leaders helping lead them to trust God, they didn't go hungry. They didn't starve out in the desert. They lived and they survived. So back to Matthew 6. We don't have to try and figure out what Jesus meant by give us our daily bread. Starting in verse 25, he pretty much spells it all out to all of us by saying this. That is why I tell you to not worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant, they don't harvest or store food in barns. Your earthly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and they're thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? And what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. So, what are we supposed to think about God when it comes to him being a provider? How far are we supposed to take this? How much trust does he deserve? And how radical are we supposed to live? 
Now, I'm not saying, you know, go quit your job today because God will provide, you know, without you needing to lift a finger. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that you can go and sit in your house and binge Netflix all day without worrying about how you're even going to pay for it. The world in which we live requires money, unfortunately. We've got bills and all the necessities of life has a price. What I am saying, though, is that here in America, the land of the American dream, the normal everyday philosophy of life is to work hard, pursue a degree, go after that dream job, that dream career. If you've got one you don't like, go get another one. We can all be and do whatever we put our minds to. Which, by the way, leaves exactly no room for God. Because we can solve all of our own problems. And we can provide for ourselves. We're good enough. We're smart enough. We're resourceful enough. And in the Christian lens, God has already given us abilities to handle things on our own. Unfortunately, that's just not what I read in Matthew 6. Our own natural thinking and impulse is to only trust what we can do and what we can handle. No, we're not in control of every situation. We know that. But we feel like we're good enough and smart enough and resourceful enough that we can make good out of all the tough stuff in life. We can do it. That's the thought anyway. That's our natural instinct. But Jesus is asking us to consider another way. Choosing to be a follower of God means that we sacrifice all the things we think we know. It means sacrificing and ignoring our natural instinct and turning our backs on the philosophy of human living, which is the ways of the world. Jesus has already made it abundantly clear that God's deepest desire is to restore humans, which is us, back to the way things were meant to be, back to the original design. And that design had God being the parent and us being the children. He's more than willing to sacrifice for our needs. He wants more than anything to be our sole provider, to be our father. And for us, you know, we still got to earn money on this planet. We still have to live each day, pay bills and pay taxes. But instead of having an attitude of, I can provide for myself and having an impulse to take care of things on my own. Maybe our first action should be to go to God and allow him to do what he's already promised and also what he does best. Maybe our faith, remember what we intimately know of him, maybe that needs to grow a bit more. Maybe we should start today to radically trust that he will actually provide. But you know, that's, that's way harder than it seems because in most situations, it's going to require patience and waiting, something that doesn't typically come very natural to the vast majority of us. Trusting God is it's just not a one-time event. It's a lifestyle. We can't say that we trust him, but yet are also keeping our options open because it just doesn't work that way. Total trust is the key to really knowing him and to having an intimate relationship with our Father. God is wanting each of us 
uh, everyone to help him facilitate his mission on this planet. But that only comes when we are ready to surrender completely and trust radically that he is what he says he is, which is our father and our provider. I'd like to encourage you to rethink, research, and rediscover the depths of this relationship, the truths of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia, which is you and me. We can't just go to church and listen to the sermon and think, hey, everything's good. That's not nearly enough. I encourage you to take hold of this faith in God, the life that we walk with him with both of your hands and make it your own. Don't take my word for it. Investigate God and get to know him on a much deeper level. But just remember that it all starts with a willing spirit to stop and think. 